I've had a good time speaking to you, and I've felt very, very honored to have the chance to do that. And I want to thank my senior pastor, Stephen, for giving me the chance to do that. It's a bit confining for me to stand behind a pulpit because I spent 20 years communicating to high school students, and one thing for sure about that, you cannot stand still in one single place in a high school classroom. So I'm much more accustomed to walking up and down the aisles, which I'm, I think I've done a great job in refraining from doing. <laughs> Two weeks ago, we were looking at family origins, uh, where we got our original family, Adam's family, why that was a problem, why we needed a new family, which we got when we were born again, and then exactly what that entails, which is the family of God is the church. And then last week, we were able to talk about family resemblance. If you're in the family of God, then you must, absolutely must resemble your heavenly father to be holy like he is holy. And just wanted to talk to you just a little bit from Philippians chapter two about family dynamics or one way that Paul is looking at the way the family ought to get together, live together and serve together. I don't have a whole lot of good things to say about the internet or the World Wide web. I think most people spend way too much time on it and whatever humans invent, Satan always walks in there and takes control of it pretty fast. I'll say one thing positive about the uh, internet, and that is those uh, map programs like MapQuest or Google Maps. I'll have to admit I have used those an awful lot, and I now expect other people to depend on that, especially young people. Do you guys remember the good old days when you had to actually give people directions to your house? You had to explain things about where to go and where to turn right and left and over that, that corner store and at the gas station turn left and all that kind of stuff. Or you maybe have to write it down. Or you might actually take out a map which once you unfolded that, it was impossible to fold back again, but you would figure out what the street was, and then you'd figure out, you'd look on these little tiny, tiny letters, and it was on 16E, and so then you go 16E, and then you still have to find the street in a square, and then eventually you find it, and then hopefully you make your way there. But now all you have to do, of course, is just put in your address at the beginning, and then put in the address you're looking for at the end, and the map pops out, and you got it. So... Um, that's, that's pretty convenient. It works pretty good. You, you know, you get roads, you get mileage, you get directions. So everything you're trying to find, if, like if you're trying to find my house, you just need to know my address and it's all done there. Just a couple clicks and you're there. And I like that because when I have people coming over my house, especially large groups, all I have to do is give them my address. And I, and I think it's interesting that they come from all kinds of directions. And if they're following it carefully, if they put in the address correctly, they will end up at the exact same spot. So it's an interesting thing that that happens from all kinds of different directions coming to one single spot successfully. For the church, I'm aware that we have come from many, many different beginnings. As a matter of fact, that's why I love walking in here on Sunday. And when I go to Bible studies on Monday or something like that, every, it's so diverse. I'm not talking about the races so much as the, all the different ways we got here into the body of Christ from just all kinds of different messes. But we all heard the gospel and we accepted Christ. So this business of being in one single place, it was always on Paul's mind. And that's why he talks about in Philippians 2 about that he wants that church, the Philippian church, to be of one mind. And it's not so easy. But he gives us something in Philippians 2 to help us see that. Look at, though, first, I want to actually want to work backwards. Would you look at, at verses 15, Philippians 2, 15 and 16? Verse 15, actually. Just let me say this. Philippians 2.15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
So the verse starts off with, so that. He's, he's worked his way up to verse 15, and I want to work my way backwards to verse 1. But the idea here is, is that, that we are children of God. Children of God look a certain way. We're supposed to be blameless, innocent, and above reproach. In what kind of a world? In a very, very crooked and perverse world. You probably have seen somebody with a broken bone before, especially if it's severely broken arm or leg. You can just instantly tell. What happens on the athletic field, you can just look and see something is not right about that. It's not straight. Bones don't go that direction. They don't stick out that way. Um, This world started off straight and pure, didn't it? It is, and it happened rapidly. It has turned out to be very, very crooked and very, very impure. But the believer, the child of God, is supposed to resemble his, his Savior, his Father, is in the middle of this world to show the world that this is the straight and right and pure way when everything else is crooked. And then by doing that, you're, you're appearing as a light in the world. Among you appears lights in this world. And this is really, really a dark world. And it feels like to you, at least it does to me, that it's getting darker and darker. That's not a discouragement to the light, by the way. The darker something gets, no matter how small the light is, it just is seen more and more clearly. I mean, after all, you guys, though the world is getting worse and worse, or so it seems anyway, and it's getting darker and darker, that has no effect on light, right? I mean, darkness isn't something. It's the absence of something. It has no effect on light. But that's the way we are supposed to be if we're really children of God, pure and as lights in the world. But how do we get there? Here's what, what Paul does in this chapter, because you go over to, say, verse 5. What's necessary for that to occur? And the answer is it's an attitude adjustment that's needed. So he says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Forgive me, please, that I, in the next several verses here, 6 through 10, I'm just going to go through it really, really quickly because it's not the thrust of what I want to say, but in the most famous hymn that has ever been written about Jesus, Paul says, this is what is true of Christ, which is the attitude that you ought to have so that you will be above reproach and lights in a very, very dark and crooked world. You need to take on the attitude of Christ. Remember this, he was, is equal to God, but in the business of taking on flesh, To go to the cross for our sins. He did not grab a hold of that, his godness, and hang on to it, but let it go. And came down to earth and took on the form of a servant. And died the worst possible death, the most shameful death, the death on a cross. But because he fulfilled what God said, then he is highly exalted. That's the attitude you're supposed to have. Now look, that attitude is a motivation for something Paul says even earlier than that. So go farther back into the beginning of the chapter where he says in verse 2, Now make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And that's what I want to talk about, by being of the same mind. But the verse says, make my joy complete. In other words, then in verse 1, he wants to describe for the church at Philippi that they have experienced something and he's saying, now go all the way and complete this. So what is experience? So now that leads me to verse 1. And this is what it says, Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Those ifs in there are not questions, but really more like since, since is. Since this is true, what he's describing is, is this, that the family of God, and this is my first point, the family of God has received the same salvation. 
Paul starts off with what all of us have in common. We have all, with the church of Philippi, with Paul, experienced the same salvation. It is an encouragement from Christ. It's, just, it's the Greek word paraklesis, just as the, what we get translated sometimes, comforter or encourager. Isn't that what Christ did in a certain sense? He came alongside us and said, and we didn't know this was true, but we need help. We need help really, really bad. We are hopeless, helpless, hapless sinners, and Jesus came alongside and said, you need to be saved, and I'm the one that can do it. We have found that encouragement. We have shared in the love that is true of all believers, love from Christ, love in Christ. We have all enjoyed and are enjoying the fellowship of the Spirit. We all have enjoyed affection and compassion. But now go all the way, Paul says, and make his joy complete. Because what's missing maybe is, uh, is the same mind. Look, we are all equally guilty here at Colonial Baptist Church. And let's remember that about our similar salvation. We're all equally guilty. At Colonial, we all come from such different backgrounds. Some of us came from Christian homes and received Christ at an early age. That's a bunch of you here. Some of us came to Christ relatively late in life. Many lived a pretty wretched life before they were saved. But no one can say of another, because I did not do the things you did, I am not as guilty as you are. What person in here would stand up and say that? Because I was saved at five years old in a wonderful Christian home, I couldn't possibly have done the dirty deeds that some of you all did before you got saved. Therefore, I am less guilty. Who would dare to do that? Nobody would. We're all equally undeserving of God's grace. Equally guilty, equally undeserving of God's grace. So, though we are all equally undeserving of God's grace, I appreciate more and more the lives of colonial members who come to Christ later in life. And some of them, after a lifetime of pretty awful sin, I see them in particular as trophies of grace. I could be wrong about that, but it's my perception. The humblest people, the humblest people at Colonial are not those who were saved at an early age in a Christian home, but those who came to Christ later after a lot of really miserable sin. And so they're especially grateful for what God has done for them. That's why I love going to Monday night Bible study with the men. I hope nobody will be offended about this, but it's got a lot of sinners in Monday night Bible study, and I like it. And they will admit it. The only reason I knew that is because they've told me. I like being with them. I like it that, that, that they love the Lord so deeply. It reminds me of that, that lady who anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume at Simon the Pharisee's house. She was called a sinner, and Jesus never denied it. She pours out that perfume on his feet, begins to uncontrollably weep, is down on her knees, wipes it all up with her hair, and Jesus said, she loves much because she was forgiven much. We're all equally undeserving of God's grace. And so we're also all equally justified. So where's the room for finding differences in church and the family of God? Where's the room for that? What person is guiltier than some other? What person is less deserving of God's grace than another? What person is more justified than some other? Paul reminded the Philippian church that he shared with them the blessings of salvation in Christ, and yet he saw something missing. He wanted a completion. He wanted them to have the same mind, right? If you have the same experience of God's grace and salvation, then you should be thinking the same. We should be all on the same track on this. We should all be thinking equally guilty. Equally undeserving of God's grace. Equally justified. That ought to be enough to put us on the same 
mind track, but does it? That Paul even brings up the concept of like-mindedness, which he does in other letters, shows that he sees it as a commonly missing in churches, but obviously a very needful thing. So what does a unified mind look like? Look at verse 2 again. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Here's how. Three things. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. What does a unified mind look like? The family of God is to have the same mind. Well, it's got the same love. What should you love? You should love whatever Jesus loves. What does Jesus love? Well, you know the answer to that question. That's not a mystery. Nobody's going to write a book and sell it at Lifeway Bookstore the things that Jesus loves. That would be a waste. Don't buy that book. That's a waste of money. It's already written in the Gospels. You just read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and over again. You'll figure out what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the Gospel. When we begin the uh, global outreach celebration, we'll have many of our missionaries come before us. One reason we love family members that we don't know, that is like, the, we know some of the missionaries, but this is a big church. We have a lot of missionaries. We don't know all of them equally well. Not all of us know all of them, but we love them just the same. Why do we love, why do we love people that are in God's work, but we don't really know them? Because they love the gospel and because we love the gospel. Therefore, we love them. It's as simple. It's amazing how simple that is. Love our missionaries, not because you know them, but because you love the gospel. That's something to love, to have the same love. Love the people that need to believe in the gospel. When you hear on Sunday or, or Friday or Saturday, when you hear a, a missionary talking about the people group that they go to, what should your heart be thinking? You should be beginning to love those people, the people that they love. I know you don't know them. I know you're not there. I don't know what difference that makes. You love the gospel because Jesus loves the gospel. So therefore, you love people that don't know the gospel. That seems pretty simple to me. You love the people that have been saved by the gospel. That's everybody here. You love whatever your brother loves. There's Doug Bergen and his wife and his daughter. I don't know his daughter, but I know that I love her. Why do I, why do I love that little girl that I don't know? Because I love Doug, and I love what he loves. There's Stacy in the back. He's sitting next to his father and mother. I love Stacy. Therefore, I love what he loves, which is his parents. And then his sister is right over there, so I love his sister. That's how it works. I don't have to know everybody all the time. I couldn't know everybody all the time, all of them at Colonial. But I love the people that Jesus loves, and I love the people that love Jesus. And that's you guys. That's how you have the same love. You're going to have to start looking at people that way. And stop saying, well, because the church is so big, I only know 10 people or 20 people. That doesn't make any difference. That's your family. You might be able to get to know them. That'd be a good thing, but you love them anyway. He says they're the same spirit, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. It's actually not the word pneumatos. It's actually suke, which really is more like soul. It's a good translation, but it could be translated having the same soul, one in soul. Think of the notion that people have about finding their soulmate, right? A soulmate sticks with a person no matter what happens. It is a person you can always count on to be beside you. A soulmate walks with you to the end of your journey. I have a soulmate. I asked her to marry me and be my soulmate 26 and a half years ago. And I believe she's going to stick with me all the way to the end, and I'm going to stick with her all the way to the end, too. That's my soulmate. But, but, but Paul talks about the church. The members of the, the, the family of Christ are really have the same spirit, the same soul. They're soulmates. This means we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We must all be thrilled with our young parents when they give birth to a child. Right? 
When one of your brothers or sisters in this church gives birth, when they have a child, you should rejoice. I realize that a newborn baby is not the prettiest thing in the world. But you just do what I do and say, that's the cutest baby you've ever seen. They get cuter as the, as the weeks go by. But you love them. And, and you rejoice with them. You rejoice with those who rejoice and you mourn with those who mourn. We must all feel the loss when one of our own dies or one of our, our own experiences grief. We don't say things like, there's a memorial service on Tuesday night and I didn't know that person. I know that. I know not everybody can know everybody who dies. But that's one of your family members. And you mourn with those who mourn. In towns of yesteryear, would have one little church. The church bell, if it rang in the middle of the day, on a Monday through a Saturday, if it rang in the middle of the day, it was a news to the town that somebody died. And everybody just stopped. Even if they stopped just for a moment what they were doing and said, the bell's ringing. It's not lunchtime. It's not Sunday. It's not church. Somebody has died. And in a small town, it made a big difference. And it reminds me of a, a poem written by John Donne in 1624. He said, no man is an island entire to himself. Every man's death diminishes me. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. When somebody in our church dies, it affects all of us. We just lost a family member. And I know that we don't know them all equally well, but we lost a family member. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. That's what we do. Let me say this about being all soulmates together. Don't forget that we are all members of the same body and though we have different parts and different gifts, it's the same body. This is a very easy thing to get disgruntled about, about gifting and about talents and abilities. Now, I'm going to tell you something here that it's, I'm not really too serious about that, but I, I love David Loftus and I've known him for a long time. I went to high school with, with David Loftus. You want to know what he was like back then? <laughs> Seriously, he was just as charming as he is today. He was an unbelievable soccer player. I played on the soccer team with him, or rather I should say I watched from the bench as he played. He was the greatest musician in my school. There's not any contest. It's just ridiculous. This will sound funny too, but I, I really am serious about this. I didn't know anything about David academically. I don't think he knew anything about me academically either. I was very, very mediocre in high school. But only when he came here did I realize that he's also really, really smart. And I just didn't know that. I, I'm sure that was all that way. Hey, is this fair... He's good-looking. Um, he's a great... He was a great soccer player. Um, he... The, the musical talent is just ridiculous. It's the, and, and then he's also smart. That's not fair. But God, who is perfect, gifted him perfectly, and he gifted me perfectly, and he gifted all of us perfectly. And it's so easy to, to, to forget about that, sometimes especially when we see that we can't figure out what somebody's gift is. But I wouldn't worry about that. If they're trying to serve the Lord, that's the important thing, and they're doing something. Now, we, we, Paul talked about how we are the body of Christ, and we tend to, and we can, if we're not careful, look down at some body part and say it's not all that important. What's the least important um, body part that you have? If, you ha- if you're talking about a limb kind of thing, I think everybody would say, it's my left pinky toe. If you have to cut something off, cut off that one. It's barely there. Right? Does, doesn't your pinky toe have a, a toenail that's about this big in it? It's, it's functionless. 
but you could cut that off. But you know what? All you have to do is stub that little toe one time on something. And I mean, your whole world comes to a crashing halt. And all of a sudden, that's the most important part of your body while you're writhing in pain. No, no, the pinky toe is not so unimportant. And we don't get to look around at, at people that, and, and say, well, I'm jealous or I'm upset or I'm upset with God because some people have more gifts than my, some people are more important. That's not the way the body works. That's not the way the body works. If we're all soulmates, we're glad for our church and what God has given our church. And everybody is very, very important. Here's something else. Don't forget that we're all at different levels of growth. Some are what Paul called on several different occasions weaker brothers. Warning to the weaker brother, don't judge your brother because he has the freedom to enjoy the following things, whatever they might be, that the Bible does not declare as sin. Stronger brother or sister, don't look down on the weaker brother. Accept them. And not so you can argue with them. But accept them because they're a part of the body of Christ, because they're your family and wait for the Holy Spirit of God to instruct them about the matters of faith that they are weak on. Remember that we need to have the same spirit, that in fact we do because of Christ, we have the same soul, and we don't make judgments about people's gifts or importance or their level of maturity. I think that's one of the major things that I am seeing that disappoints me, and I have to check myself too, that we're looking and, and we've somehow gotten the ability to evaluate people's status in the church, levels of importance or levels of maturity. And that's not being of the same mind, of the same love, of the same spirit. Here's something else Paul said, intent on one purpose. The purpose of the church in this passage can be seen in, uh, in verse 11, actually. It says, really, so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the same, that's the purpose that all of us have. It's the same purpose. We've got the same love, got the same spirit, got the same purpose. The church, the purpose of the church is the exaltation of Christ, what God did with the cross, and the glory of God the Father. This is what colonials intent on. Each of the ministries of our church, led by pastors and elders, is intending to glorify God by exalting Christ. I really do mean that. The way the church sometimes functions day to day, it may not look like that because it is a, it's a complicated thing. But I know as a fact from watching that that's the intention of every single pastor and elder. That's what the ministry focus is to glorify God, to exalt Christ. We're about intentionally making each member more and more like Jesus. Every single pastor, every single ministry. We're about transforming each person so that they resemble Jesus. And we try to cover all the bases, right? Babies and seniors. You know, when Scott Wiley is thinking about his ministry, it is a great thing when a five-year-old memorizes John 3.16. And I think Scott thinks that's a great thing too. That's not what Scott's about. Scott's far more future thinking than you would believe. Scott's thinking about that person, that little boy, that little girl at 35 years old, married, is it a, it's a successful marriage? Are they good parents? Are they serving Christ? So Scott just gets them at the beginning. But his satisfaction and joy in his life is not so that, that a kid memorizes the Bible verse, as important that is, as that is. 
but that he's looking forward and thinking, I want that person to be a Christ follower who, who's in service. That's what Scott's thinking. He's thinking about the, the end product. Brad Harbaugh thinking about the seniors who are older. He's got the same thing. He's, he's, not, he's not talking to them about what you can do now that you're retired. You can just take it easy now. You spend your whole life doing all kinds of things for God. Now you can just sit back and relax. He's, that's, that's not what he's telling them. He's thinking about, do, are you guys still serving Christ and resembling Christ? Are you glorifying Christ? We try to cover all these bases. Married couples, and singles, and students, and scholars, and hearing, and deaf. We're trying to turn members into active disciple makers. We're trying to turn members into worshipers and evangelists. David Loftus is trying to turn all of you into worshipers. He's not satisfied until that's done. He thinks everybody is supposed to be a worshiper. And, of course, he's right. He's not, David Loftus isn't trying to get people into the choir. That's not what makes his world go round. He's trying to turn all of us into worshipers. He's teaching us to do that. David Williams is not just supporting missionaries. He's wanting everybody to be an evangelist. David Williams will be satisfied when all of us are evangelists because he wants us to bring everybody into the kingdom of God to glorify Christ. Stephen is not going to be satisfied until all of us, and I know it doesn't say sola scripture here, but are, are grounded in the word of God and have determined that is the authority for my life and nothing else. I will evaluate and judge absolutely everything on the word of God. We all have the exact same purpose. Colonial will function very, very well, very, very smoothly when everybody is understanding that purpose. We do it all kinds of different ways, but the end product is exactly the same. To turn people, believers, into a certain type of people that brings glory to Christ, brings glory to God, and exalts the gospel. See, it's all about equipping the saints for works of service so that God is glorified through Jesus. Look at, look at verse 3 of Philippians 2. Now look, if you're going to do this, to have the same love, same spirit, same purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And, and don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In fact, Paul says, have the attitude that Jesus has, the attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. So the family of God is also to have the same humility as Jesus. And this is what will help us to have a same mind, to be like-minded together as a family of God. Look at people as more important than you. Notice that Jesus did not say that people were more important than himself. The Bible says that he regarded or considered people more important than him. There wasn't anybody that was more important than Jesus. He didn't think that, and he never said that. He regarded them that way. He treated people as if they were more important than himself. This reminds me, of course, of the second greatest commandment, which says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. There's no denying that you, that you love yourself. The Bible doesn't really, strictly speaking, say stop loving yourself. You're just going to keep on loving yourself like you have the day you were born. The second commandment says love people like you love yourself. That's good enough. Love people just exactly in the same way that you love yourself. It doesn't take too long for you to consider what that looks like. 
as you think about how you take such excellent care of yourself and how, I mean, think about this, you guys. What's, what's the biggest mirror in the house possibly? I could be wrong about that. But it's the one in the bathroom probably, right? What, what, what room in your house has the most light bulbs per square foot? It's the bathroom. I think, probably, possibly. It's just one gigantic mirror with all kinds of, um, it's like airport lights all over the thing right there, right? And so if you're probably fairly typical, you wake up in the morning and you go into the bathroom and that's the first thing you see, the person you're in love with most. And just so you can see yourself really, really well, you put a lot of light bulbs around the mirror. You're going to love yourself. The Bible just says, Love people like you love yourself. If you can consider what you do for yourself and how you think about yourself from beginning to the end of the day, from sunrise to sunset, if you begin to love people like that, you're on the way to being like, you're on the way to being like Christ. You're going to, on the way to, to forming a church that is like-minded, that looks at people more important than yourself. He says, look at people's interests as more important than your interests. I always know I'm dealing with an immature believer when they reveal to me that they're trying to, what they're trying to get out of church. I'm going to, what, why are you going to Colonial? Well, I'm trying to find a place that, and then the, the, the end of the sentence is a place that will basically do something for me. I'm glad you're here. But you just told me that you're an immature believer. Why did you leave Colonial? Well, they didn't do this for me. I didn't get enough of that. I tried that and somebody did, wouldn't do this for me. And we're dealing with an immature believer. You already know that Colonial is not a perfect place. But it reveals instantly maturity levels when people say, I'm going to church to get something out of it. I really got something out of it. And that's the important thing. That's what people are thinking so often. When they're disgruntled because they didn't get what they came for, mature believers, on the other hand, are looking out for what they can give, not what they can get, right? That's how I know I'm talking about a, um, to a mature believer. They're thinking about what can I do to serve here, which, by the way, is basically the people on Sunday night, so I'm, I'm glad you're, I'm preaching to the choir. I hate to have to quote um, John F. Kennedy. I never thought I would do that from a colonial pope, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> he was on to something when he said in a famous speech, ask not for what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That's the right mindset. He, he, he got it right. That's the way it should be in the church, too. Not what do I get out of this. You don't walk away into the parking lot, into the car, off to lunch on Sunday morning saying, I really got a lot out of that. Actually, I, I hope you did get a lot out of it. But really it should be a matter as I served somebody at church today. Look at Jesus always as a supreme model of humble servanthood. And that's that famous hymn, verses 5 through 11, about what Jesus, what Jesus did was he did what he could all the way. When we are telling people in the church to be like Christ, we're not actually telling anybody to die on the cross for somebody's sins. You can't do that. What Jesus serves as a role model for all of us is that he had a mission, and he did it all the way. That's what you're supposed to do, just that. I don't know exactly precisely what your mission is, but you've got to go all the way. You've got you to go all the way to the end, which is what he did. And, and the whole time that he was doing that while he was on his earth. He, he knows he's God, and he says, I will not grab a hold of that, not now. I will release that for this time so that I may take on flesh and die on the cross. That's what he did. That, that's our supreme model. As far as I can tell, online matchmaking services such as eHarmony are pretty successful. 
Maybe I'm just believing what the commercials say, but they're kind of fun to watch. But actually, there's probably some people in here that got matched up on that. That's fine. E-harmony. I'm guessing that people feel like they are having trouble finding someone that they have a lot in common with. I guess that's why you do that. I don't, I've never been on that kind of thing, but I'm assuming that you put in there facts about yourself and that there's somebody else that's going to put in facts about themselves and hopefully a whole bunch of things match up. And th- thus, you found somebody you have a lot in common with. And the idea there, of course, is, and here's the danger of it, is you find somebody they have a lot in common with, then your marriage will be successful. Why did that marriage break up? Well, they didn't have a lot in common. I mean, it's understandable why they divorced. They didn't have enough in common. They should have spent more time trying to find somebody that they had more in common with. Some of the most basic advice that I give in premarital counseling is to focus first on relationship with Christ and then on relationship with your mate. The first thing that you want, want, wants to come out of your mouth in premarital counseling is you want to say, stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about your mate or your future, the per, your fiancé or, or your spouse. You're too selfish. You're thinking about yourself. You should be thinking about your mate. That's only halfway there. That, the problem is, is that both of you need to be focusing on Christ, and then all the other matters get taken care of actually quite well. If two believers are focused on Jesus and maintain that throughout their lives, and they will stay together and will end up at the same place. It's, it's quite simple. Can I make it to the end of my life still holding hands with my spouse, even though we're going to go through an awful lot of storms? Yes. Is the solution that you both look in each other's eyes the whole journey? I wouldn't do that. (laughs) The solution is both of you keep looking at Christ all the way to the end. And then at the end, you will find that you both arrived in the exact same place at the exact same time. Still holding hands, right? In other words, pay attention to Jesus and it will guarantee that you'll pay attention to your spouse. I mean, no man can say, I was paying attention to my walk with the Lord, but neglected to pay attention to my wife. What? I, I, was, I was maintaining my walk with the Lord, but, you know, through all that, I, I started to ignore my, my wife. No, you were not paying attention to the Lord. It doesn't work that way. Likewise, in our church, when we are paying attention to our Savior, then we're paying attention to our church family. We don't actually see Jesus. He's not visible. The most important thing about being like-minded and having a unified church is that we're all looking in the exact same direction. We're, we're wondering what, what Christ is thinking. We're loving what he's loving. We're taking on the humility that he had, which is manifested throughout the entire Bible, in particular in Philippians 2. Churches break apart, you guys, when people stop paying attention to Jesus. They stay together. They stay single-minded when they all pay attention to Christ. Let me read again Philippians 2. And verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. I want us so badly to have a a unified church that is single-minded, same love, same spirit, same purpose. We can do that. Would you pray with me?
Thank you, Father, again for the Word of God. Thank you for being such a great communicator. Through the written Word, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. Lord, we're looking at your Word and really earnestly asking for help to be a church that is of the same mind. Help us to think about these things that we studied in Philippians tonight and endeavor to do them, starting with the next couple of minutes and all the way through next week and then the next week. Lord, would you help us when we are weak because we are weak? Help us to draw on your power to live these things out and make a difference in the world, a dark and crooked world. I'm counting on you to help us um, because that's who you are. You're such a gracious Heavenly Father. Now, bless us this week, Lord. Keep us from the evil one, and may your will be done. I pray this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.